Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in the seat in front of you that you're more than welcome to use. And if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to keep that one. We love God's Word here, and we think there's no greater treasure that we can hold in our hands than the very words of our God. And so we would love for you to have a copy for yourself. So 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 12, but I'm going to back up a little bit, partially because it's just too good not to. And I just, I'm going to, I promise I won't still be reading this when we're in chapter 5, I think. But we're going to start in verse 3 to kind of set the context for what Peter's about to say to us in verses 10 to 12. So Look on with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, sometimes I think one of the hardest things for us to remember is just how good we really have it. When we have something, or when something's a part of our life, it's just just far too easy to take it for granted, is it not? But when we remember what it is we have, it completely changes how we enjoy that thing. And I'm struck by this all the time. Here's just a few examples, see if you can relate. I have a tough day with the kids, but then I think, I have two amazing daughters. How great is that? Or I might have a hard situation that I face here at work, and then I think, it's so crazy that I get to be a pastor. How great is that? Or then something breaks again in our home, and just when I'm about ready, and I've had it, and just start knocking down walls and doing my own demo, I think, Wait, wait, we own a home. Like, and it's dry and warm and it has stuff in it. 
How great is that? And I think it could be the same way with our following Jesus. As we encounter trials and challenges, we can get so focused and tunnel visioned on what's hard that we take for granted what it is we actually have. And Peter's goal in our passage this morning is he wants to help us appreciate and feel thankful for our salvation. To help us stand amazed and humbled that this salvation is actually ours. He wants us to look at this salvation and say genuinely from our hearts, how great is that? So you notice he starts our passage by saying, concerning this salvation. So we know two things right up front. Number one, we're going to be talking about salvation. And number two, whatever things the rest of the passage is going to tell us, these things are concerning or having to do with this salvation. So if we're reading our Bibles, the first question we should ask is, concerning what salvation? He says, concerning this. So we say, what salvation are we talking about here, Peter? Well, the answer is everything that I just read before it in verses 3 to 9. That's where we hear about this salvation that we're talking about in verses 10 to 12. So let's recap. What is this salvation? This salvation is what happened when God came to undeserving sinners and gave us a whole new life in Him. It's what happened when we were dead and hopeless in our sins and He caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's when we were unable to save ourselves and He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own great mercy. It was when our future held only judgment and wrath, but God instead gave us an unshakable inheritance with him that he himself is keeping for us in heaven. It's when not only did he do that, but he himself then said he will guard us through faith for this salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He promised he will do whatever it takes to get us safely home to him, even using trials to prove and purify our faith and because he's done all that we rejoice in him we love him and we trust him as we wait the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls it is that salvation that peter now wants to encourage us in he just laid it out he said let me i want you to understand just how great this really is so what does he want to tell us about our salvation to help us see just how great it is I found seven things in our passage. So here we go. Put up the slide outline if you, get, if you can. Here we go. So if you're following along, these will be the seven things he tells us about our salvation so that we can see how great it is. Number one, it's about grace. Two, it was prophesied beforehand. It was sought by the prophets. It was proclaimed by the Spirit. It's focused on Christ. It's desired by angels. And it's for us. Okay, so we're going to move somewhat quickly through these, but that's, that's your roadmap of where we're going. So the first thing we see about this great salvation is that it is a salvation of grace. Do you see that in verse 10? It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace. So what that means is that everything we just saw up in verses 3 to 9, the new birth, the living hope, the glorious inheritance, the being guarded by God, the using trials for our good, all the glory that is coming to us, all of that 
is grace. What does that mean? That means, friends, that there was never a time in the past that God looked on us and saw something impressive or worthy in us that prompted him to save us. And it means that right now, this morning, there is nothing that we have to do to qualify for God's kindness or to earn his continued goodness to us. And it means there will never be a day in the future when God looks on us and owes us anything based on how well we've lived. We didn't deserve salvation in the past. We don't deserve salvation now. And we will never deserve it in the future. God saved us, is saving us, and will save us only because of grace. Our great salvation is entirely a gift, freely given to us, and not because of anything we've done. In fact, when it says it's grace, it actually means more than that, right? It's not, not only is it not because of anything we've done, it's his free kindness to us in spite of everything we have done. Not only have we not earned our salvation, we have done everything to earn our condemnation. We've failed over and over and over. We've ignored, disobeyed, and rejected our maker. And though he could have justly and rightly left us in our sin, doomed to face his judgment, instead, Jesus came to save the hell-bound man. He came so that we could experience full forgiveness and freedom from our sins. He came so that we could no longer be separated from God, but reconciled to him. He came so that we could actually know God. In our salvation, God promises to not turn away from doing good to us. He promises to work all things together for our good. And he promises to give us all things in Christ. And all of that is grace. Friends, what we experience in salvation is nothing but grace. The first thing Peter wants to remind us of about our salvation is that it's grace. So that we say, how great is that? But then the second thing, he goes on. The second thing we see is that all this grace was prophesied. Look at verse 10 again. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Okay, so what does he mean by it being prophesied? Well, one thing this means for us is that the grace that you and I experience as Christians isn't a new idea that suddenly showed up with the coming of Jesus. It's not as though this whole new religion popped up. When you read your Old Testament, he's saying the theme is one of grace. That's what the prophets spoke of, was grace. And long before any of us experienced this grace, God was already announcing that it was coming. This helps us to remember, and I think this is what Peter's wanting to do for his readers, is it helps us to remember that God has always had one plan. He didn't call an audible when he got through the Old Testament saying, ooh, this is not working. I need to shift gears, try something else. He's had one plan. And it's been steadily unfolding throughout the pages of your Bible and throughout the years of our history. What he prophesied, he brings to pass. That's why when the New Testament writers record what Jesus did, and when they tell us what it means, they are constantly writing with one finger back in the Old Testament. 
Have you ever noticed that? How much your New Testament is built off of your old? In fact, one commentator said about 1 Peter, he said, 1 Peter contains so many quotations or allusions or echoes of the Old Testament that he said there's hardly a verse in this letter without one. It's so saturated with the Old Testament. Now, why would that be? As Peter wants to tell us about Jesus and the gospel and this grace is because the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about the grace that arrived in Jesus. And not only did the prophecies about grace, the grace that was coming, give God's people in the Old Testament something to look forward to, it did that. When they heard about what was coming, it gave them hope as they looked forward. But it did more than that. Because those same prophecies also provided something for God's New Testament people to look back to for confirmation. And that's what Peter's doing, right? As he's pointing back to the Old Testament, they could look at all that God had promised would happen and then look at Jesus and say, it's him. He said it would be like this. He did that. He said he would be like this. He is like that. He is the one we were promised. All that the prophets said, it's him. Friends, the, experience, the salvation we experience as Christians, like I said, is not a new religion that sprang up out of nowhere. I think it's easy for us to think, as you read your Old Testament, you see the emphasis on the Hebrews and the Jews, that if you keep going, that's the straight line, and Christianity kind of took this curve over here, this detour. But what we see is that the prophets, the Jewish Hebrew prophets, were prophesying about the day when this gospel would go to the nations. This is not a departure from the plan. This is the fulfillment of the plan. We are still in the line. And that's part of what Peter wants his readers to see. Is He's saying, you're not some offshoot. You're not some second class. You're not something different. He's saying, what you experience is exactly the grace the prophets prophesied would come. He wanted his readers and us to know and delight in our place in God's story. And that takes us to the third thing we see about our great salvation. Because the prophets didn't simply speak about this grace that was to be ours, right? It wasn't this cold, calculated, oh, and here's what will happen. What does it say in verse 10? It says they searched and they inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, these prophets were shown what was coming and they longed to experience it for themselves. They didn't just simply say, okay, what is that you want me to say? Okay, here's what God said. No, they hear it and they seek to know this future grace. They hear it and it just, something wells up in them and they just want it for themselves. They want to understand what will it be like and they want to know when, when God, when will these great things actually happen? Will will it be in my lifetime? This was the best news that they had ever heard or that they could even imagine. And so the word has, kind of has to do with like miners. Miners, they, they dug deep. They searched carefully, trying to find out anything about this news that they could. They searched the scriptures. They looked at other prophecies, other things that God had said. They inquired of God in prayer. They did all this, and yet there was so much that they didn't know. I mean, they gave their hearts and their lives to understanding what this was coming, and there's so much they didn't understand. 
And Peter wants to remind us how incredible it is that we get to see what they searched for all their lives. Jesus himself told his disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is telling us, he's saying, oh, you have no idea what you have. Do you know how badly the people in the Old Testament wanted it? We know that they longed to see it. Abraham knew that there was an offspring coming who would bless the nations. Moses knew that there would be a true prophet to whom God's people should listen. David knew that there was an eternal king who would come and rule. And Isaiah, man, Isaiah, he knew a lot. He knew that unto us a son would be given. He knew that Emmanuel would come, God with us. He knew that there would be a suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of God's people, and yet none of those guys knew when. They eagerly sought and inquired, when, God? How long? Will it be soon? Tell us more about this Messiah. And but what none of them knew, we do. Can you believe this? We know what Isaiah and Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and all the prophets, what they just dreamed of. Can you even fathom the privilege we have that we live on this side of the cross? The prophets dreamed of the day these things would be true and you and I can now gather and sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. The someday they long for is the every day we live in. How great is that? So the question this begs for us is, man, should we be any less eager to know and delight in the salvation we have than what they were? I mean, they only caught glimpses, but they longed to see more. Tell us more, God. What else can I know about it? What will it be like? Help me understand it. They eagerly sought it. And yet we've seen so much more how incredible this grace is. And shouldn't that make you and I even hungrier to know this grace better? Friends, there is so much more for us to know. If you think I've been a Christian for a long time, I've seen what there is. Oh, man, you're just getting started. To paraphrase an old quote, the gospel is a body of water where a child can wade, but an elephant can swim. Yes, we know it. We know it truly. But there is so much more. So let's not be content to wade in the shallows when we can swim in the depths of God's mercy and grace. Friends, we will never plumb the depths or reach the bottom of God's love and goodness in the gospel. So let's dive in. Swim deeper still. No matter how much you've seen and enjoyed, the good news is there's more. There's more. And as you swim in it, marvel at the fact that the grace we experience, the prophets longed to see. That's the third thing. The fourth thing we see about our great salvation here is that it is proclaimed by the Spirit. Proclaimed by the Spirit. We see that actually two different ways in our passage. First, we see that it is the Spirit 
called the Spirit of Christ, who was speaking through the prophets, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, every Old Testament prophecy was spoken by the Holy Spirit. Peter's going to say this even more clearly in his second letter. Listen to 2 Peter 1, verse 21. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, every prophecy you read in your Old Testament is not just the thoughts or predictions of some holy men looking into the future, giving their sanctified best guess. It was the Spirit of God speaking through them. God himself is telling us exactly what God himself is going to do. But the Spirit speaking didn't just stop with the Old Testament prophets. You see that? That was part of it. But now look down in verse 12. There Peter talks about the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He's saying the same Spirit that predicted the coming of Christ and what he would do in the Old Testament is now preaching the good news that Christ has come and what he's done. The message is the same, and in one sense, the messenger is the same. It's still the same Spirit who's speaking through God's people. And friends, as I pondered this point this week, this is good news for all of us, but I took this especially to heart and this is good news for you as well because you and I can both take heart that when I step into this pulpit, God has not left it up to weak and feeble preachers like me. Instead, he provides an abundant supply of strength for every sermon and declares that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The same Holy Spirit sent from heaven that worked through the prophets and through the apostles, is still working this morning as I preach the good news of Jesus to you. How great is that? And that leads us right into the fifth thing we learn about our great salvation. As the Spirit speaks, did you notice what he speaks about? The Spirit's message and our salvation is focused on Jesus. When he prophesies, he predicts the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. When he speaks through those proclaiming the gospel, he speaks of what Christ has done to save sinners. And this is exactly what we should expect since the Holy Spirit's focus is to make much of Jesus. In John 16, Jesus tells us what the Spirit will do when he comes. Jesus said, he will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is unambiguous. He says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. One of the best explanations of this idea I've ever heard is from J.I. Packer. Maybe many of you have heard this. But he compared, he was actually going to preach on that passage one night when he walked up to a church and he saw this and it became his illustration, just clicked in his mind. What, what it is, is he compared the work of the Spirit glorifying Jesus to a floodlight shining on a building. What he means by floodlight is, if you think of like landscape lighting that's in front of a house or a building that shines up on it to kind of make it look nicer, 
Here's what he says. Here's what J.I. Packer says about the Spirit's ministry. He says, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This, he says, perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. He goes on to say, the Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life, get to know him, and taste his gifts of joy and peace. Friends, the Spirit loves to shine on Jesus. He loves to help us see him and admire him. And so it's no wonder that when the Spirit spoke through the prophets, he spoke of Christ. And when he speaks through preachers of the gospel, he speaks of Christ. That's his focus. But notice that when the Spirit speaks of Christ, he zooms in on something in particular. So what did he predict about Christ? His sufferings followed by his glories. Those glories are most likely referring to his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his building his church through the spread of the gospel. When the Spirit spoke about the coming of Christ in the Old Testament, that was his emphasis, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's what the whole Old Testament is pointing us to, a suffering and glorified Messiah. Listen to how the New Testament makes this clear. In case you're like, I don't know if that's what I would say the Old Testament's being. Here's what our New Testament tells us. First, Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He's meeting with these guys that don't know who he is. Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then a little bit later, in case we're not convinced in that chapter, he says to his disciples, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What about Peter? Well, Peter preaching in Acts 3 said, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What about Paul? Paul preaching in Acts 17, it says, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. When he's before Agrippa, he said, that, he said, I'm just saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would come and proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Are you getting the picture? All the New Testament's looking back at their Old Testament saying, 
This is what it was saying. That God would send his Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah. His anointed chosen king. And this king would suffer for his people and then be glorified. You might be thinking, okay, I've read the Old Testament. Or maybe I've read part of it. Okay, I've read a little bit of it. But where, where would that be? Let me just give you two places where we see this suffering and glorified Messiah. First, Psalm 22. There we see the suffering king who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This picture of intense suffering. But as you go on, the psalm then turns to praise. And we read things like this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Do you see what's happening here? There's intense suffering by God's anointed one, followed by worldwide worship of the Lord as future generations proclaim the righteousness that he has accomplished. What about Isaiah 53? First, the suffering of God's servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Now don't just rush to the part that talks about us. Hear, the, hear what's happening to the servant. Rejection, grief, affliction, pierced, crushed, wounds. God's chosen servant is suffering for his people's sins. But what follows? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. In other words, he'll see the ones he rescued. He shall prolong his days. In other words, he'll live forever. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the same suffering one, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. In other words, God will reward him, and he'll share his reward with us. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, the whole Old Testament is filled with the Spirit of Christ predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That had always been the pattern announced. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And yet, even when Jesus came, people still didn't get it. They still didn't expect suffering. A suffering Messiah? 
Think about our author, Peter, of all people, rebukes Jesus when Jesus tells him that he must suffer many things and then be killed. Peter says, no, Lord, may it never be. They missed it. They saw the glory but missed the suffering. But now, on this side of the cross and resurrection, seeing this pattern of suffering than glory, suffering than glory can be a source of deep encouragement to God's people as we suffer. That's why Peter comes back to this truth over and over in this letter. He wants us to see that our suffering is not a surprise because we follow a Savior who suffered for us. And that should inform how we handle our suffering. Listen to how he's going to do it throughout this letter. Let me give you a few. Chapter 2, he's going to say this. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Chapter 3. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter wants us to see, friends, this pattern matters. That what we saw about Jesus is going to be true about the Christian life. First suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. Because just like with Christ, suffering is not the end of the story. There are glories that follow. And that's why after all those quotations where Peter says, you're going to suffer like he suffered, suffer like he suffered, suffer like he suffered, when he gets to the end of the letter, what does he say in chapter 5? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. We're meant to see that this pattern of suffering followed by glory was predicted about Christ in the Old Testament, experienced by Christ for us, and is now experienced by us as we follow him. The pattern is important because, hear this, as surely as we face the sufferings, so surely will we enjoy the glories. It was predicted by the prophets, proven by Christ, and now promised to us. So our salvation is so great because it is focused on the sufferings of Christ for sinners and the glory to follow that we all get to share in. The sixth thing that shows us how great our salvation is is the fact that even angels long to look into it. The picture here is, think of like spectators at, a, at the Super Bowl or some big football game. These glorious beings love to watch in amazement as God works this salvation out in his people. Luke 15 tells us there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. They're just sitting there together looking, peering into, saying, did you see that? Did you see that, that guy? But we all, we all know what he's been doing, right? Jesus just saved him. Did you see the grace right there? Oh my goodness, I thought surely Jesus would be done with him. He kept him. He preserved him. He brought him back. He wandered away and Jesus went and got him. Can you believe this? They long to look into our salvation because they will never get to experience it the way we do. 
The angels have never sinned, and therefore they'll never be redeemed. So they can only imagine what it's like to be saved by a God who loves and delights in you even at your worst. Which brings us to the last and absolute best part of this great salvation. This salvation that is all grace. This salvation that was prophesied long ago by prophets who yearned to see what we see today. The salvation that was predicted by the Spirit in the Old Testament and is now preached by the same Spirit today. This salvation focused on Jesus, especially his sufferings for sinners and the glories that follow. All of that makes for one amazing salvation. But the greatest part of all, this salvation is for us. Do you see that in our text? Look back at verse 10. Peter says, The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Later, he says, It was revealed to the prophets that they weren't serving themselves, but you. All this great salvation has been prophesied, predicted, purchased, and preached for us. We get to experience something the prophets long to see. Something the angels can only watch with wonder. Friends, we are saved. How great is that? How can this salvation be ours? Well, we must be born again to a living hope. We must turn from our sin and trust in this suffering and glorified Christ. So that even though we can't see him, we love him. So that even though we don't see him now, we believe in him and his promises. And we have a joy that is deeper than our sufferings. And when we do, Peter wants us to see all this about our salvation. So that now we can enjoy this great salvation and marvel at just how great it truly is. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, would you stir our hearts to see and believe and marvel at how great this salvation. Father, forgive us for the times we take it for granted and it becomes boring or commonplace or we just don't even think about it. God, would you hold it up, shine a light on it, help us to see in brilliant detail the wonders of this salvation that you have been working out from before time began. Lord, help us to see the marvels that your spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories. And now your spirit has proclaimed it through the preaching of the gospel. Thank you that you were working in the Old Testament, not just for your people then, but you, you revealed it to the prophets then that they were serving a people as yet unborn. Lord, they didn't maybe know our names, but they knew what they were saying. They wouldn't get to see firsthand but it would be for people in Indianapolis in 2023. God, would you make us marvel that this salvation can be ours. Father, we thank you that your story throughout the Bible is not just a hodgepodge of, of good fables and morality tales, but it's one unfolding story of a God who comes to save undeserving people. Thank you for all the ways you foreshadowed that in the Old Testament, how you pointed us to the Christ who was to come. 
Lord, it's all about him. His the story, his the glory. Would you help us to see and savor that more and more? We pray this for your glory and our good. And all God's people said, amen.